Hello and welcome to you all. I'm your host, Soul Lovemore, and this is Can I Get a Picture? Join me every episode as I get to pick the brains of some extraordinary people, hearing their struggles and successes that have shaped who they are today. Today we're talking to Frank Smith, the CEO of Matchroom Boxing and the man behind some of the world's greatest sporting events. You know him for bringing us infamous sporting moments such as the heavyweight clash between Anthony Joshua and Andy Ruiz Jr., which is sure to go down in history. It's certainly a moment I won't forget. I was first introduced to Frank in 2012 and was really inspired by his career journey which has led to some incredible once-in-a-lifetime experiences with, of course, a few bumps along the way. I hope you enjoy our conversation as much as I did. It really was a pleasure to understand more about the man. Frank, uh, welcome. Thank you very much, uh, first and foremost, for agreeing to do this. I mean, I've known you since... I was trying to think about this, actually, and I think it was 2012 we first mm. met. I don't know if you actually... Do you remember how we met? Through through AJ, wasn't it? Where were we? Do you know what? I can't remember whether it was a fight night or it was just an evening out. I can't... Honestly, for the life of me, I've been trying to work out exactly when we met, but I think it was... I know it was 2012, but when and where, I mean, yeah, that's the... We we don't look any older. Look, I, I, I look like a baby face, and you and you look exactly the same, mate. So the pressure hasn't got to us. Long may it continue. I hope um, I hope it lasts. But yeah, Frank, do you know what? One of the main reasons I thought of you when I was starting this podcast and had this idea was because I've known you obviously since 2012 in your early days at Matchroom when you started looking after AJ and really being involved in the boxing side of you know, matchroom sport and just to, you know, as someone who knows you as a friend, as an admirer, what you've gone on to achieve from where you started, you know, is, is I remember you driving the, the little white Mercedes and, you know, just starting out just as a young guy and you you were full of life and to see that you've gone from that to see your matchroom boxing as a, as a friend, first and foremost, I say I'm super proud of you just from being close to you and seeing it happen because, you know, most people talk about, success and it's like you you watch youtube videos and this that and the other but actually having someone you know personally see them go from here to actually making it to the point where most people want to is yeah super inspirational so that was my my reasoning behind having you on you know and uh yeah you're thank an you mate i'll give you that 50 quid i'll give you that 50 <laughs> quid next time i'll see you for that, for that proper build up oh, i love that but yeah frank let's um Let's go back to let's go back to early life to the start. So, what was what was it like growing up in Romford? What was Frank like in school? You know, young Frank. Uh, uh, young Frank was. I never really liked school. Not. I didn't dislike it. I just, for me, the whole thing of years and years just to work up to a test and then be judged on one test, basically in your primary school and secondary school, to me, just didn't really work. I didn't never understood it. So. Don't get me wrong, I did all right. I got some B's and C's, didn't set the world on fire. Um, but I knew that I wanted to go out and do something and, and sort of make something of myself, whatever that was, whether it was stacking some shelves in Tesco's uh, or I wanted to be a stockbroker at one point or where I ended up here at Matchroom working across a number of different sports. I don't think I really had a aim of where I wanted to end up. I just knew that if I worked hard at whatever I did, eventually I'd do well and that for me was that for me was the big driving force um growing up I was lucky my parents and my grandparents had their own businesses so I sort of understood what went into becoming successful and failures at the same time you know seeing you know seeing things that don't always work out and seeing the journey of people so I think these days all people see is the successful side of people they don't see any of the work that goes into getting you there you know, people just follow someone on social media and they just see the good bits. No one's going to put up the shit bits, are they? Where, where you're sitting on your laptop at two in the morning or you're sitting doing work. Like, no one shows that. So I think I was lucky to have that insight into, you know, people in different stages of businesses. And, uh, yeah, I think I learned a lot in my early years and just sat there and listened a lot. Yeah, no, it's amazing. And I love that you you touched on actually how you found that entrepreneurial spirit and as you said having you know 
your parents and your grandparents already involved in in business, it, it is true that when it's so close to home and you're actually seeing it, I think the best way of learning I've found anyway is actually being involved and seeing it happen rather than, as you said, at school, you know, I think education is good for like a discipline and a structure. You know, you get used to waking up at a certain time, going through your studies, you might play a bit of sports. So it gives you like a overall routine. But I do agree with you that it, it, to a degree, you are right that being just judged on, right, you you work this amount of years at the end of that, you're going to get a test. And in that test, you must nail it to prove that you've, you know, it's it's quite a, it's quite a narrow, for me, it's a narrow approach and such a broad, in such a broad thing. And um, so, yeah, no, I love that you've, you've touched on that. And in terms of growing up as well, um, hobbies, what did, what did you do outside of, you know, outside of school? What did you play, obviously ending up in match room sport, did you play any sport or were you into sport as such? I think as with all young boys mainly and now girls coming through, I think I love football. I used to play a lot of football. I used to play for Chigwell boys. thought I was better than I was, but I was probably <laughs> bloody useless. Always, always had a dream that I'd end up at West Ham Academy. Never never quite came came true. Um, yeah. I, I had a season to get at West Ham for about two or three years. I used to go there with my dad a lot. And sport was never... Football was the one thing I was interested in in terms of sport. Away from that, I didn't really follow anything else. You know, a lot of people say to me, did you want to work in boxing or did you want to work in darts or snooker? And it was just, I think I was interested in different businesses and I wanted to just go and work for successful people. So sport wasn't my main aim. It was never, I'm going to go and be a boxing promoter or be a sport promoter or work in events that was I just sort of fell into it if I'm honest yeah no fair enough and and I, I guess as they say the best things in in life most of the time and in terms of career success you look at a lot of people it is the things as you said you just stumble into naturally and you you kind of find your feet and you go from there but um I, I was actually laughing when I was just like doing a bit of um, doing a bit of research on you. And one of the, the, the one of the things that I've been waiting to ask you is this um, 14 year old Frank, the story about how you got work experience at Matchroom, <laughs> the infamous raffle tickets. You you have to tell it better. You can tell it better than I, I can because I've already read it. So, yeah, please. <laughs> that, that, yeah, that was the early days. I remember. When, when I was a, when I was growing up, I was always a bit cheeky. Just got involved in it, you know. Went and spoke to anyone and wanted to hang around older people. And I think I my dad threw a party one year for for his uh, team at work. And my dad's business partner was one of Eddie's best friends. Um, mm-hmm. So I was selling raffle tickets for a charity. My granddad had died, so I was I was doing that and I was going around the room to everyone like, "Give me a tenner, give me a tenner, blah blah blah." And I got to Eddie, he gave me 20 quid. This is Eddie, yeah. I'm my boss now, gave me 20 quid. And someone said to me, see that geezer over there when I'd walked away? He's got the Bentley outside. <laughs> and I went, the tight bastard only gave me 20 quid. So I went I, I went back up and I got 50 quid out of him. I think my mum hit me for it. Um, but that was that was the start, really. And that was, yeah, that was where it all kicked off and, I just I remember taking his business card and literally pestering him nonstop after that until yeah when I was fourteen gave me some work experience in the summer then the next summer at fifteen um, and then yeah sixteen was when I start I left school started full time with him but in that period I sort of just literally pestered him day in day out and was like you need to give me a job you need to give me a job he was like I just don't think it's I don't think it's right. I don't think we're going to have anything for you. I went, look, I'll do anything you want. And he's like, oh, do you know what? I'll give you a chance. So 16 years old, started full time. And uh, yeah, the, re- the rest is history. No, do you know what? I love that as well. And just to just to hone in on that piece of like persistence, it's exactly that. You've seen an opportunity as a young kid. You know, you've gone back to him and you said, look, right, he's given you the 50 quid. You've taken the business card and... And I think I love that because most people, Frank, I see this all the time when I'm out and about with work and everything is people collect numbers and business cards for the sake of saying, I got someone's cards and they never act on it. They think just by going, hi, John, nice to meet you, sending one little pretty email that 
you're going to jump out of your skin and respond. But the reality is most people, as you get one email, you go, okay, great. You probably want to respond. Then you forget about it. Life happens and it's forgotten about. But as you said, having that perseverance and tenacity to go, actually, you know what? I'm going to message him nonstop until he replies and gives me a job. Because the reality is I, I believe in this. Don't ask permission, ask forgiveness, right? You have to be persistent and annoying because if you're not, people just go, Okay, yeah, thanks for the email, and that's that. But you, it it clearly shows in your example is that if you do want to make something happen, it's by any means necessary. If I have to send twenty five emails and make twenty five calls and knock on the door twenty five times, is if that's what it takes, that's what it takes. So, yeah, I love that that um, hustler's ambition. I guess from a young age, that's what I always say to people. Now, you know, we get a lot of people come on to us for jobs, especially now the sport of boxing has, has kicked off. Everyone comes on to us for jobs. And I always say, literally, email me once a week. And if I ignore you for 50 weeks, it's because we're very busy. And I'm not being rude. And I'll be up front to you. But maybe on week 51, I might go, actually, this guy, this guy, they've got something about them. They might have something, you know. And that's that's how I, I did it. And you can do that for years and years and years. And most of the time, you might go, oh, you know, well, I haven't got time. I haven't got time. I haven't got time. But one day you might look at it and say, actually, we should give this person a chance. Yeah, no, for sure. And and it's exactly that. And I love that you've even given your own example of in, in your own company, because I guess for every for every person is going to be different. But I, I totally love that advice of just being, you know, persistent and persevering, because in our generation now, as you rightly said, is everyone looks at like the, the end goal, not the process that it takes to become a Frank Smith. Do you know what I mean? It's like for you to go from where you started from the raffle ticket story all the way to now being CEO, there's a lot of work and a lot of years, which we will go through, obviously, in this conversation. But that's what I think the focus for every young person or anyone who has aspirations, dreams of doing anything needs to focus on is actually not not the end goal, not how do you become CEO of Matchroom as such, is what what does it take to become successful as a whole? I think... That's where social media is a, is a fantastic thing. But I think it also sometimes can be negative because you see an athlete or someone post a car or a house and you go, oh, I want the house. But then you go, well, hang on a minute. How how much work has gone into getting that? You don't know. And most people aren't probably prepared to make the sacrifices to do the work. So, yeah, no, again, I just wanted to to say I really appreciate that point. And obviously you mentioned at 16, you now join Matchroom full-time. Um, Eddie's finally given in. He's had enough of Frank knocking on his door. So what does that, what does that look like when you go into, when you go into starting at Matchroom? And, and what did your role entail? How did it, you know, how did it all kind of grow from there? Yeah, sure. Well, we here, here at Matchroom now, we promote probably 12, 12 different sports, I'd say. Um, around 600 event days a year across those sports so it's you know it's non-stop a lot of people know us for the boxing but you know we, we run the darts snooker golf fishing bowling poker everything you can imagine um when it, when i started when i was 16 we were heavily involved in poker so that was i'd spend a lot of time in the tv studios literally making everyone teas coffees getting them pizzas whatever anyone wanted i was a little runner in there and i think for about Two years I did that, and you know, I was I was very good at making coffee. Still am today. Uh, <laughs> haven't let it <laughs> haven't let it get get to my head. I'll make you one next. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, so uh, yeah, I did a, I did a lot of like running at events. I'd used to you know do things like I put the advertising boards out on the golf courses. So on our golf tour, I used to go out at four in the morning, three in the morning, put the golf boards out. I used to stick sponsor stickers on hats i used to give out leaflets at train stations because i was too young to get arrested <laughs> so i used to stand outside romford train station or liverpool street uh, liverpool street train station giving out leaflets for the darts or for the boxing or this that the other so and it, and we used to have we used to there used to be three or four of us and it used to be like they'd look at me this 16 year old kid and think what the hell is this like and just walk past me about a hundred people would stroll <laughs> past me and they'll give out one <laughs> you i i, I, sh- I realize now i probably should have just put them in the bin and said i gave them all <laughs> away but uh no I, I, i'd stand outside liverpool street from like 6 a.m till about nine then do the afternoon when everyone's coming back 
Um, so that that was that was a bit of fun. Used to do what else do we used to do? Used to go to Leighton Orient a bit and do a bit of work down there in the shop, helping out. Once got in trouble for putting the mascot's outfit on in the office and running round in it. <laughs> Classic Frank. Apparently, you're not allowed to do that. Uh, so, yeah, I, I've, I've sort of done everything that you can imagine from what we do, uh, like even from cold calling companies. Eddie used to put me in Barry's office, so Eddie's dad, and uh, he used to say, just sit there and ring these hundred companies, right? And it started, and I'd be like, hello, hello, I'm calling uh, from, from Matt, you know, like stuttering down the phone, like, and, and they'd yeah, be, course, and they'd be yeah. like, uh, they'd just put the phone down. And then slowly after like the thousand, number thousand call, you'd, you'd slowly get into it. And you still get mugged off every now and then. But it would be like, can you put me through to the marketing director? And they go, do you have his name? And they'd be like, no. Can you put me through to his answer phone then? Okay, we'll do that. And then you get his name from the answer phone and you ring back and say, can you put me through to whatever their name was from the answer phone machine? And they put you straight through to it. And uh, it was it was just, the, again, the perseverance of just never really give up with it and just keep pestering. So uh, as I say, I've worked, I've, I've been lucky that I've worked through a load of different uh, areas of our business from top to bottom and I think that's what keeps me you know grounded with it all and uh, puts me in a good place because I can literally work with we've got a team of 30 people in our boxing department and I can work with them on every scale from top to bottom like you ask me a question yeah because I've done it and and I'm not saying I'm the best at every area but I understand what everyone's going through and I understand what it takes to get it done. So that's been helpful for me. And the fact as well that I was given the opportunity at 16 and then throughout the years to take on different roles, you know, things that I used to look at and go, I haven't got a clue. I used to sit in Barry's office and he'd say, right, now do the international TV. And I'd be like, what's an international, what's international TV? And I'd walk out, I'd be like, I don't know what I'm doing, like scared. And then after a while you think, what is there to be scared about? Just, you know, you'll learn and you'll get there and you start to understand it all. Yeah, exactly. And, and as you said, obviously it served you well to have experience across the business because I think it also allows your team now to respect you more because you're not just a CEO coming in from nowhere and just taking on this role and saying, I'm the leader. They know you've really gone from the ground up. You've taken on every role. So there is no excuse anyone can come up with to say, oh, Frank, but this, then the other, because you can say, hey, look, before you complain, I was in those shoes. You know, I started from serving coffees and drinks and flyering outside train stations to now being here. So I think it's it's invaluable. And I'm, and I'm sure people in your team must look at that as well and just think, you know what, fair play. We've actually got a leader who's been there and done it rather than just, you know, because a lot of people will, will, will come in and just want to be authoritarian without actually earning their stripes. I mean, you've done it the best way possible i was saying that that's the great thing about this business and working here is that people are given opportunities from you know that people are brought in sort of a, a lower level and and built to work through rather than people coming in at a top top end who have no real experience of what we do you know come in and you bring in, like you say you bring in a ceo who's been a ceo elsewhere but doesn't really understand your business you know i think having the ability to work through a business, you, you understand the values of that business, um, you know, how, how they need to work, how they want to work. And I think that's really helpful. You've got like uh, one of my colleagues, Matt Porter, he's now I think 40 years old, but he was at 26, he was the youngest ever CEO of a football club with Leighton Orient. Um, and he was another one that was given an opportunity like I, I've been to, to go out there and, and, you know sort of deliver at a young age and that that's i think um that that really helps you showing that you know people can build their way through you know i started as a, again as a 16 year old and i always thought like i wonder where i'm gonna go in with this like i wonder where i'm gonna end up am i just gonna work here for a bit and then go somewhere else is it gonna be but there was a path to get to somewhere where i wanted to be and i think that's that's the great thing about here you know we don't bring people in again at the at the high end you know we let people work through so I always say that to young people coming into the office new people starting you will get opportunities you just literally have to work as hard as you possibly can 
and and literally non-stop 24 7 and that and that's the price you have to pay and I, I always find there's no you know it's no problem if you don't if you want a nine to five job or you want to work 10 to four like, that's no problem there's there's thing there's jobs out there for everyone and there's opportunities out there for everyone and and it just depends on on what you want and I think for me it's always been I've sort of given up my life for work but I have no problem with that because my work has become my life but I love what I do every day there's no day I wake up and go oh do you know what I can't be asked and and that's and that is sort of the price you have to pay you have to give up like when I was the ages of 16 to 21 I wasn't going out with my mates I wasn't like you know spending the weekends at home I was out working and I lo- like I, I will never complain about that I love that but there's no on the other side not everyone has to do that or not everyone wants to do that and there's no problem with that there's no right or wrong mm. it's just what makes you tick yeah no for sure and as you said I think the uh, and I'm glad that you've touched on that it's exactly a key thing as you said about the price you pay it's the sacrifices of from a young age you made up your mind pretty early to say look this is where I want to get to. And if it means I'm going to have to sacrifice my weekend, sacrifice going out with the boys and doing this and doing that, that's what it takes. And you did it. And, you know, looking at where you are now, it shows that it paid off. But I don't, I don't think there's even like a right or wrong. It's just, yeah, it's just like I made a choice and I'll never, I'll never look back at it and go, I shouldn't have, you know, I should have done this, should have done that. Um, it, I say the only sacrifice I've ever made is my family. I'd say that's my only one is where I've missed things. You know, I've missed birthdays. I've missed weddings. I've missed like my little niece's neck. But at the same time, I don't think, and I always say this to my family, I don't think I would be happy if I wasn't doing what I was doing. And that may sound really sad to people, but like working is like my life. But that, that some people think that's quite sad. And like, but everyone's got their vices. Like some people have got, they want to go out. Some people want to go and, you know, go and go out and drink and go out and party. Like, and there's, again, there's nothing wrong with that. But you, you, everyone has those things. And I think work is my vice. That's my thing that I sort of connect with and want to be doing. Um, and, you know, I've always said that. I've even said that to my girlfriend, like, you know, Work has always been first with for me because even before I was with my girlfriend, that's always been my life. And I sort of look at it that, you know, I want to do this. I, I don't think I can do what I do in terms of traveling around the world, getting on a plane every couple of days until I'm 50. I think I'd have a heart attack if I carry on doing that. So I, I, I'd quite like to, by the time I'm 40, I'd slow down, you know, or, look into doing something a bit different and but I want to do it now I, I want to work and put in as much effort as I can now while I'm fit young and able because you know as you get older it doesn't doesn't get any easier does it no for sure and as you said it's it's taxing on the body having to to you know do all that traveling but actually with that said as you said one of the the things I love about everything you're saying is the passion piece right as you said to you giving up your you're 16 to 21, even your 20s, really, from doing, as I said, what is traditionally considered what you should be doing when you're young to to get to where you are wasn't a sacrifice because for you, that's what gave you life. That's what makes you jump out of bed in the morning and, and have a spring in your step. And the reason why I think you have that mentality, as you said, is because it's your passion. It's what you It's what you really love and that's your calling. So actually the main thing is, the main message here, I think, is, as you said, there's no right or wrong answer, but it's finding exactly what makes you tick and what makes you get out of bed. It's not about, oh, I need to sleep, I need to rest. Because as you said, every two, three days getting on a plane is just thinking about that makes my head hurt, personally. <laughs> you know, speak, but, but I know you're we, on the road. We, we, we were talking about it, yeah, because obviously during this period of sort of quarantine, not being able to go anywhere, we've, uh, you know, we uh, like I said, I've never spent, in the last two years, I haven't spent as much time in my house. And I think when you say about like running on empty and you've always got more, it becomes like a routine. So like we worked um, 40 in 2019, we worked 45 weekends 
of 2019. So including, yeah, pretty much every weekend, including then you fly back from somewhere. So it's, you know, seven days a week, really, for 45 weeks of the year. And it becomes this routine where you just roll on, right, it's like, right, on to the next one, on to the next one. And you don't really think about it until, like now, I look back and I go, bloody hell, that was relentless last year. But at the same time, you know, when I talk about sort of the things I've missed and giving up my early younger years, even up to now, I also look at the opportunities I've had and the places I've been and the people I've met. Like I've met people that I never thought I'd meet. I've been to Downing Street. I've been to, you know, uh, the, the prime minister's offices around the world for like site visits. I've met, you know, we've done stuff in Saudi with princes, you know. So all these things that you think, I'm just a kid from Romford. Yeah, exactly, like, yeah. And how have, I ended, how have I ended up here? Like, you know, that that's, they're the things that sort of make up for the things I've missed because I've got so many stories to tell. Although the only, the only thing, I, again, I was talking to someone about this the other day, I was saying I sort of, I need to start writing things down because it's so relentless. You sort of forget all the things you do over the years. Like it just merges into one. You, we we were sitting at the airport, Eddie and I, a couple of months ago. And we were like, do you remember that time we were there and this happened? He's like, Fuck it, yeah. It feels like it feels like fifteen years ago, <laughs> and it was like two or three years ago. Because you do so much, as you said, there's there's so much going on that you, you because you're living it, you almost overlook the importance, as you said, of these occasions. Yeah. You're at Downing Street, you're meeting Saudi princes, you're meeting royalty here. You're all these things, and I, and to be honest, what you're saying about writing it down, I must say to you, um, I've had a diary now probably for the last, I'd like to say four to five years, and I never used to write, and now I write literally every thought down, whether it's the business idea, personal, my mum needs something or whatever, work, anything I've done. And actually, as you said, it's a great way to collect your thoughts, because if I showed you my diary, it looks like mumbo-jumbo, it looks like a mess but in my mind I've written it down and if I look at that page I can compute exactly what that means and it, it makes, makes sense to you yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's it's like Morse code to most people so <laughs> I would highly I would highly recommend you you trying that out because as I said you you do so much I mean I look at your Instagram and I'm like Jesus I'm sure I saw Frank was in the UK like four hours ago and now you're in Italy and then you're here and then Next minute you're in. Then I'm in Bagatelle with you. <laughs> yeah, next we're in Bagatelle. Next minute you're in New York in some high rise. It's just, it's <laughs> honestly, it's crazy. So yeah, I can imagine that you've had some. What would you say is one out of all the things you've mentioned? Like you said, the people you've met. What's like a a, a highlight that sticks out in your mind when you say you went somewhere and you you were in awe? Like, wow, I'm actually, you know, this is little Frank from Romford, and I'm here in this, you know. Do you know what? I don't really get starstruck by anyone because we have so many people at shows. We meet so many people. It all just sort of merges in. Like the one person who I saw, I was in a, I was at a Rock Nation in a meeting at Rock Nation. As I'm sitting down in the office, there's just two of us in this office. Jay Z just pops his head in. He's like, "Hey, how you doing?" Like that. I'm thinking, <laughs> you know, and like I meet a lot of people from like all over the place, and I thought, "Fucking hell, that's Jay Z." Like I was yeah. like, and you just see me go. How you doing, mate? You all right? <laughs> do you know what? That's but do you know what, Frank. That's one of the best things about you. I love. It's like you see most people see Jay Z. I think they would have like a genuine heart attack. They would probably pass out for at least two minutes. You see Jay Z and you go, "Oh, you're right, mate. How you doing?" Just, <laughs> just like just a, just a casual Tuesday afternoon. Jay Z pops his head in and it's just like Frank just saying hello. Yeah, hi, mate. I think a, a funny story that I've got is is uh, when we when we did um, Logan Paul against KSI in LA. Obviously, so many different people turned up, so many famous faces. But we had Justin Bieber uh-huh. was sitting, so I was sitting in a seat. Eddie was next to me, and Justin Bieber was next to him. And during the rounds of the fights, I don't like people standing up in the front row because people who've paid money can't see. So. So Justin Bieber is next to Eddie, stands up, and I'm like, he's standing up for the whole fight against the railings, and people can't see behind him. I'm like, Justin, Justin, can you sit down, please? 
And he's like, <laughs> his mate's like, leave him alone. I'm like, no, mate, he's got to sit down. <laughs> and then <laughs> Eddie's looking at me, just crying his eyes out, thinking, <laughs> you're... <laughs> <What>? <laughs> Telling the beads, the... sit down, Bieber, listen. Sit down, Bieber, <laughs> yeah. And on the same night, we had a we had the fake Ed Sheeran. It's been there's been a video on YouTube, like someone who looks like Ed Sheeran. He's quite <laughs> apparently does it a lot of the time. Yeah, turned up at the show, and we're sitting in the front row. So there's Eddie, me, my missus Emily, and Joe Markowski from the Zone, and this fake Ed Sheeran is sitting at the end of the row, and we're sitting there in like this huddle, going, "It's not in, it's not in," and Eddie's going, "I think it is in," and someone else is going, "I don't think it is in." And it's like, well, this is really risky. If we chuck him out, we could be chucking out the real Ed Sheeran at this point. <laughs> <laughs> Turned out he was the fake one, obviously. So we got we got rid of him. Oh, that is that is so funny. But you know, that must be, I guess, for you guys dealing with stars and things like that all the time. It must be quite. Uh, it's a it's it's a tough role in the sense, as you said, is obviously you want to give them the space and like the 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 recognition, I guess the credit because they have earned the right to be who they are. But then, like you said, with the Justin Bieber story, it's still a fight. People have paid money. So whether you're Justin Bieber or Joe Bloggs, if you paid for a seat and you want to see the fight, you deserve to see the fight. So I do agree with you that it's a, it must be like a, you know, like a balancing act to make sure you don't want to upset Justin, but at the same time, you're not going to let him ruin your work because you put in hours and hours and hours to, to develop the arena, get the seats, get the view right. You know? Yeah, no, no, that, that, and that's the thing with it. Like, I don't, I'm, I, I don't really care who anyone is in terms of, like you said, if if they're doing something that I'd say to my brother was doing wrong or this person was doing wrong, it doesn't matter who they are. I'd be like, excuse me, do you mind doing me a favour and just can you sit down, please, or can you go over there, or can you mind out the way? It doesn't matter who it is, and I think that helps because there's a lot of people, like you say, who a get starstruck and b just will do what people want them to do. Whereas I just think, like, I might never see you again, mate. So it doesn't really matter, you know. You know, you ain't gonna, and you also you're not gonna remember me when you walk out of here tonight. So that, it's irrelevant, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, no. To be fair, you're right, and it's and as you said, it's it's really about treat people as they are, not who they are. You know, not not to be not to be mean to someone because you think, oh, do you know what? That's just whatever that's regular Joe who cares and be like super nice to someone because you think, Oh, by the way, that's Justin Bieber. I think I, I love that approach. And I think we're one in the same is that you just treat everyone as equals because at the end of the day, regardless of how successful we become or what you achieve in life, it is always good to be kind and good to people. Cause as you said about your journeys is why you're in the position you are is because I've known you for over eight, nine years, and I can genuinely say from all the people I know who have become successful, you are exactly the same as when I met you. I can, I know if I see you out, I'll be like, Frank, what's going on? And you always say, hi, so how are you? What's going on? We have a conversation. We catch up like we've been together every day. And it's, it's, it's credit to you because you've kept your feet on the ground. You haven't really allowed your environment or circumstance to now be like, okay, now I'm Frank. I've got a you know, this bravado and I've got to walk around a different way. You're still, as you said, the fact that you can casually just say, hello, mate, to Jay-Z just shows you that you you are really removed from like the celebrity of your work and you genuinely passionately care about the job and people, which is why in turn you are now, you know, in the position you are. I, I think because also, like we said earlier, where I've worked through all levels, like I have no problem with being a T-boy. I have no problem with going to make you a cup of tea. I still would go and do it. I did it for Barry the other day in his office I'm, when I made him a cup of tea. It doesn't doesn't bother me. Like I think, and I think because I've seen a lot of people who are successful and worked with a lot of people who are successful, who I think, do you know what? You're a complete arsehole and you're a complete arsehole to people around you. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Like I, you know, you see see the way someone treats someone differently. I think, what is it? What's the point of that? Like, you know. Well, why do you need to do that? Why not be any different to them than you are to this person? So I, I, I'll be honest. I think I had a period probably when I was about 23 where it got to me a little bit in terms of, you know, a bit like being completely honest. And that was probably for a year or so. And then I thought, well, that doesn't, it's not really likable. It's not really a nice character trait. And 
I think everyone has to go through periods where, you know, they, they sort of go through a little bit of change to understand what's right and wrong. Um, and, you know, it's just a learning process. So, yeah, I think that's the key for me is just stay on your, stay on your feet. And just, you know, uh, the one person who always bring me back to my feet or the two people is my mum and my missus. They would not let me get big headed. <laughs> exactly. And I think mums especially and, and I love and I love the the point there of exactly that, that you can't and first and foremost it's great that you're self aware, you know, and honest enough to reflect and go, Do you know what, at this point in my life I think I did kind of get consumed and caught up in the in do you know what I mean, the the environment. But then you were you you were aware enough to go, actually let me take a step back. That's not really who I am. That's just because right now, because essentially, I believe that as we evolve and as we grow and we and we, you know, increase our stature in in work, in life, you occupy a space. Right. Being a CEO of a company, being a sports star, being whatever you occupy a space and you're in that space for a window of time. And after, you know, as you said, you hopefully for you, it's your 40s. You might step back from that role and start to do other things. Someone else will come and fill that exact same role you're in and having that approach of being humble and humility is the way to go because that means you're never going to have to adjust who you are. So going back to talking about life lessons uh, you learned early on, I've coined this one Pokergate 2008 and yeah, just uh, so enlighten us about that because I think that's quite a, quite a valuable lesson to earn, to learn so early on in your journey. Yeah, that was, uh, so I'd started, I'd, I'd got my full-time job, 16 years old, £700 a month, felt like a millionaire. And uh, this, this was October. We were working at a po- on a poker event in Maidstone Studios in Kent. Felt like I was on holiday a million miles away, which was only, but it was only 40 miles from my house. Um, but I was away with everyone, you know, we were staying in the hotel all together. I was a 16-year-old kid thinking, oh, this is fun, isn't it? And uh We'd finished the day's filming, went back to the hotel. I wasn't old enough to drink, so I just stayed up with everyone. And everyone was up till like two, three in the morning. And uh, got to about three and I thought, you know, I'll go to bed now. So I've gone to bed. I'm sharing a room with a guy I still work with now called James Dawson. We're laying in bed, go to sleep. And then our our, uh, alarms were set for 8.30 or 8 a.m. And we had to be at the studio for nine. And the alarms have gone off on the phones in the hotels. You know, when you set a phone alarm in the hotel, so the phone, the phone, phones start going off. We think, bloody hell, we haven't been asleep long enough. There's no way that's the alarm. Someone's prank calling us. <laughs> so rather than wake up, we unplug the phones, turn them all off, and we end up waking up two hours later at 10 a.m. So this is two months into my job, and I'm two hours late at this point or an hour and a half late. And I look at my phone, I've got a missed call, miss calls from Eddie, I've got missed calls from Beiju, who ran our poker division, and I'm just thinking to myself, i fucked up. And we get in the car, and James is a bit older than me, so he's quite calm. He's like, look, don't worry, everything will be fine. And I'm thinking, I'm going to get sacked. Eddie turns up, and he walks up behind me, and he drops a letter in front of me. So while I'm doing the work, I open this letter, and it's a final warning. And I start crying my eyes out. Like literally, not just a few like tears everywhere, falling onto the letter, falling onto the desk, right? Crying my eyes out. And I've tweeted it not long ago, the final warning. Um and yeah, that that really set me for the rest of for the rest of my career. Never do it again, basically. It was that was and that was another moment where my mum gave me the most almighty bollocking ever, saying you've been given an opportunity and you messed it up, blah, 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 blah. So, yeah, from from then on, I, I was never late again. Yeah, do you know what? I, and, and I think, as you said, it's really good for it to have happened you, to you so young because then from then you've got it in the back of your mind to go, do you know what? Literally, final warning means final warning. I don't really want to lose this opportunity, so I've get, got to get my act together. And it really lends to the point that you made earlier about making sacrifices, right, because you've – you've now got in this position where you've turned up late and, you know, the final warning letters come and you go, well, nothing is worth more than this opportunity where I'm trying to go, 
you know, so naturally I think it probably just helped you adjust and go, right, from this day forward, I'm never going to be in a position where I, you know, do anything that puts my my career, you know, my ambitions at risk. And I think we all we all face that challenge day to day, no matter what walk of life you're in, is there's always things going on, whether it be temptations or or the the, the potential of making a mistake, which could, you know, basically put a spanner in the works. But, you know, it's it's being conscious and aware to know, you know, that ultimate focus and you know, going back to exactly what you're trying to achieve and reminding yourself daily. And I'm sure till this day, now you can laugh about it, but in the back of your mind, you probably still have that thought of, you know what, thinking about that memorable final warning, there's no way I'm going to make a mistake like that again. No, I still have the thought, am I still bloody on the final warning? It could all be <laughs> over with a click of, click of fingers and now <laughs> I'll be gone. <laughs> uh, yeah. yeah. No, that that was yeah, that was a big moment. Like because I think at that point I thought I've got lucky to be given the opportunity. That was my lucky part. I'd been given the opportunity, and I and I needed to appreciate the fact that over a number of people that could have had that chance, I was given it. So that was the point where it was like, right now it's all on you to take it away, run with it, and and work as hard as you possibly can because no one else can do that bit other than yourself. And also, I think. Now, now is like a sort of blame culture as well, where you know everything is other people's fault, everything is on someone else. I, I've always taken it's all on you. You know, you've it's up to you to go and do it. You can't blame anyone else. It's not anyone else's fault. It's down to you. So you've got to take it all on your shoulders. Um, I think one other area I've been lucky with here is where I've been given opportunities. You know, people make mistakes, and I think this is a company where. Now, you can make mistakes. You're not normal if you don't make mistakes, but you have to learn from them. You know, there's no point making the same mistake 10 times. And that's where that's where we've been lucky here is given opportunities. And if things haven't gone your way, you go and learn from it. Now, for sure. And um, uh, whilst we're here, Frank, one of one of the things I wanted to, to ask you as well before I forget is, you know, as you mentioned, now Matchroom Promo, you said 12 different, you know, 12 different sports. Um, you know, 600, you said, I think about 600 shows or events a year. But what my question to you is, why did you settle on boxing specifically? What was the, the catalyst to go, okay, although there's poker and all the other bits you had worked on, why the, you know, why the transition to, to then be more responsible for the boxing than anything else? How did that, you know, how did you kind of navigate or, or end up in, in, in the boxing division of Matchroom? I think that's another area where I was probably lucky in terms of timing that when when I came in and was working through, it was something that Eddie wanted to get back into heavily. Um, we, we've always been in boxing, but we sort of t- took our foot off the gas a little bit um, and, you know, we're doing smaller shows. And then where I'd been, wor- where Eddie had given me the opportunity to come in and I've been working with him on the poker, I think I naturally just followed him then into the boxing part of the business. And again, that, that maybe wasn't, you know, when I first started, it was never all eyes on boxing for me in terms of when, when we came back with it. It was just, right, that was one of the events you've been working on. Then you go and work on the darts. Then you go and do something here. Then, you, you know, it was always working all over the place. As the sport got bigger again and our, our boxing business got bigger, that's when I became more focused and, uh, you know, set my sights completely on it and then worked my way through through the roles. Do you know what it makes total sense as you said about you know following Eddie into you know into the boxing because I think when you see and this is just my my humble opinion when I see Eddie and and see how he is do you know what I mean I see a lot of you and Eddie and vice versa you know although Eddie's more you know for, for those who've met Eddie you know Eddie's got he's got a larger than life character you know he's like I think Eddie could sell you anything you know he's probably the, the, the smoothest man I've met in terms of you speak to him it's just like butter on toast isn't it really but whereas you're you're very much like a more reserved character you know you're like you let your work do the talking you don't you're not really a big big character but you're still very well respected just because of the way you are and the way you handle people and I think actually the way you and Eddie work together is amazing because there's that you know it's like yin and yang there's like balance and whilst we're on the subject of Mr Hearn how have you found that like it's almost like a mentor protege relationship, but like, how has it been like working with Eddie, learning under him, and just 
you know, with him day to day? I think, you know, because I started so young, I feel like a feel like he's an older brother in terms of, you know, I've grown up with him. I've spent more time with him. I had a birthday, I had a small birthday gathering recently. I think last year my, my girlfriend threw it for me. And uh, I looked around the table and the people I'd known the longest there were Eddie and his and his partner, Chloe. I'd known them out of everyone at the table. It was 10 or 12 people there. I've known them the longest. And that I've, I've sort of grown up with him. I've spent more of my adult life with him than probably anyone else. So, you know, you have moments where you drive, I'm sure we drive each other completely insane. But we, uh, you know, I, I've been lucky enough, and, and Barry as well, that I've been lucky enough to learn from them both. Um, and what well, I think, as you mentioned earlier, we have completely different strengths. You know, I'm, I'm very much, I'll sit there and just listen and take it all in and I'll pipe up every now and then with a, with a thought. And then I'll go away and I'll work on it and I'll put together a plan of how it happens. Eddie is literally, again, as you say, the salesman could sell anything to anyone. He will walk out there, he'll, he'll say something and put a plan together in his head, he'll say it, and then he'll walk back off the stage and go, right, get it sorted. <laughs> you know, so that's that's the, that's the relationship we have. You know, it's, it's like he is goes out there, says what he needs to, and then I, I sort of go away with the team and then we, we make it happen. Um, and that's why it's a great balance. And he doesn't, you know, the good thing is uh, he doesn't get too involved in, in my part of things. He always lets me get on with it. Um, and because, you know, I've got, he trusts me now, which is, which is great. And I'm lucky to have. As you said, I think that trust piece is so, so important, especially in, in, a, in a working environment, because I think that's, that's probably and most likely the reason why, you know, you've been able, to, as you said, to develop so much is because, Eddie has, and obviously Barry, we'll, we'll touch on Barry as well. Um, they've both allowed you the room and given you the, the authority to say, right, Frank, you're in this position. You're the decision maker. You get it done. I know you were in charge. Um, didn't you have the responsibility for Groves Frotch at Wembley? No. And you were 21 at the time. Yeah, they, we had a, another. We had a, a head of boxing as well. Then John Wish, who you know was heav- heavily involved as well. But that was probably my first sort of big step into a big event. That one, I, I think. What where we where we're lucky is that you know we get to see from start to finish, from saying we're going to put on an event twelve weeks beforehand to get into the event itself, and walking out in front of. 90,000 odd people, not us doing the walkout, but, you know, obviously seeing what's been put together, we get to see the results of what we've created. And I don't think that gives such great job satisfaction. I don't think a lot of jobs anymore, you know, you, you have that. I don't think you always get to see the end product. There's a lot of people in jobs that are sort of middle, you know, someone does the first process, someone does the second process, third process, and you don't always get to see what you've, what you've done. Um, and at the same time, like you say, me running around at events, that, that's because I sort of put so much pressure on myself to make it as good as it can possibly be from the tiniest details all the way up to the, to the big details because you're judged there and then on what you've created. And, and that's, that's great. And in the same ways, it's also hard because, you know, every night is, is the pre- is pressure on you. Yeah, no, I can imagine that. And you've, as I said, you've managed to deal with that pressure very, very, very well to, you know, from all the fight nights I've seen you put together, even you look at, I mean, AJ Klitschko at Wembley again, huge, the, just the, everything you put into it, the show, you know, AJ coming out on those big, you know, on the stands with the big AJ on fire that night, just seeing the amount of, that wasn't even just boxing, that was entertainment, you know, yeah, I think every show, you know, I've probably worked on and organised probably 200-odd boxing events in, in my career so far. Um, and every every show has different challenges. Every show every show has, a, has new new things you have to work towards. But I'd say the biggest one we've done recently is obviously Saudi. You know, that, that trip to Saudi, that was creating something brand new, um, creating a stadium. And, and I probably made... I had nine trips out to Saudi before the fight itself, back and forth between August and December, um, you know, working on plans. You know, the, these things take hundreds and hundreds of people to put together, you know, just in the planning stage. 
So my role, I always look at it, is just trying to bring everyone together because you've got so many views and opinions and so everyone, naturally everyone is most interested in their area. My role is always trying to bring all those people together. You know, we sit in a room with 50 people in a room and ideas bouncing around the place and it's like, right, let's just stop and let's go through it, you know, in detail and, and make a plan. So we, we tend to take you know, 12 to 16 weeks on the big, big, big stadium shows of planning. And that's working with the venues, working with our broadcasters, working with the council, police, everyone you can imagine. And I think over time, it obviously gets easier because once you have a blueprint, it's quite easy to follow. Um, but it's still the fact of you still have to make sure all the processes are in place and make sure everyone's working together. But Again, we're so lucky because we, we get to walk out and see, you know, for example, I look at the Saudi, on my back, on my screensaver of my uh, laptop, I've got set, the Saudi set up on there with 20-odd thousand people in there. And I think back to the first day I went there in the middle of August when I walked out to this site and it was literally sand and rubble, right? And I'm walking around and I'm thinking, oh, my goodness, what I thought, you know, like, the work has got to be done here. And then slowly you go back then in the beginning of September, you go back mid-September, you go back early October, and you see the developments. And you still think, bloody hell, we've got a long way to go. But to see to see that over a period of time is quite amazing. Yeah, and I mean, again, the, the arena you guys built and just the setup, even the hospitality was slick earlier, I wanted to ask you, which, is, which I think, again, is quite hilarious. But... Um, it, it, there's also some, you know, some valuable information in there. Is the um, David uh, Higgins story? <laughs> you know the one I'm talking about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So that, that was when we were negotiating the the Joshua Parker unification. So when was that? That would have been 2018. Um, so late 2017, we were doing all the deal for it, negotiating it, and it, and we got quite close and. Uh, David Higgins, who was Joseph Parker's was his promoter at the time, flew, flew over to uh, to the UK to come to our office. We're sitting in our office, and we've got you know, it's me, Eddie, and David. We're sitting there with the copies of the contract, and it's quite a warm day. And David Higgins sits there. He goes, "Bloody hell, it's warm in here, boys. Are you trying? Is this your negotiating technique? It's like a sauna." And he's like, do you mind if I take my shirt off? And we're thinking, what the fuck, take your shirt off? Like, we're trying to do this unification deal. And he's like, he takes his shirt off and he sits there in a vest. And, and I'm just thinking, oh, my God. But we work closely with him now. He's a, he's a good guy. He's a good laugh. But that was one where, you know, ev- everyone's different. But I am literally every single little tiny detail. I'm sitting there through this contract. And we're going page by page and it's like, can we come back to that one? I'm like, no, let's get it done. You know, like we're on page one, let's get every page. And, and that's, you know, that's where my, I see my strengths are. I look at, I will work on every single, the tiniest detail you can imagine. I will still have interest in and make sure it's right. Yeah. And I guess, as you said, rightly, um, I mean, in, in your, um, in your arena, especially when it comes to those uh, contracts, I'm sure they're pages and pages and pages. And, you know, as a, as a boxing fan, you know, I always kind of, we all read the news and you hear, oh, this person's got this clause in their contract, which means they can't fight such and such. So I can imagine that makes your job even that much more difficult because you have to make sure that all the contracts are watertight, you know, and favorable for your, you know, for your, for your camp and for your fighters, essentially. And that's where, you know, like you look at social media now, there's so much pressure from people to go, why can't you just make the fight? You know, they think it's just, what do you think it is like a phone call? Yeah, I'll do it. All right, perfect. I'll do it. I'll see you there at nine o'clock tomorrow and we'll get it done. And like these things, these things take like 40 page contracts, little, like every single detail you can imagine goes into it. And it isn't easy because again, as you say, everyone's fighting for their corner to say, no, I want this. No, I want this. No, I want that. You know, and that is back to every tiny detail. And there, there's a lot of people in boxing who make things hard work. Like uh, the dressing room has to be the exact same uh, dimensions for each fighter. It's like, like, you know, down to, and they measure it and they'll measure the dressing room. And then, you know, that is the same with every day. I won't go up until the press conference table until they go up to the press conference table. 
and I want to pick my colour shorts for, and I want to do, you know, it's just like, it's endless when it comes down to it. And there's there's some people in boxing who literally are very difficult. I can't name them. Maybe I will when I retire and I don't have to work with anyone again. Yeah, but, sure. you know, <laughs> but, but people don't see that, that side of it. Yeah, do you know what? And I love that you, um, that point as well about, the fights, because that's one thing I see on social media. Oh, Eddie, come on, Eddie, put a fight together. AJ Wilder, put a fight together. White versus this person, this person versus that person. And, you, and, and in reality, I always look at it and go, guys, this is not school. It's not like you can just say, oh, do you know, I want to fight that person. I'll meet me around the corner after school and have a tear up. Like, it's it's just not that. This is professional sport. You know, there's, as you said, there's contracts, there's people's livelihoods at stake. So, of course, it's not just going to be as straightforward is someone posting putting a poll on social media and you guys going yeah do you know what guys love the idea we'll just pen that tomorrow make it happen yeah no exactly that's the uh that's what a lot of people you know i've got steve from wrexham on twitter says just make it happen (laughs) it's all right cheers steve like you know or dave or dave from huddersfield no you gotta do it you don't know what you do it like it's like oh mate you know Right, but that, that's the joy of social media. In some ways, it's so good. In other ways, it gives everyone the opportunity to have an opinion and be an expert in whatever it is. It's like it's like this at the minute. It's like the COVID situation. Everyone's an expert, aren't they? Everyone knows what the government should be doing. Yet this guy is an electrician, and nothing wrong with being an electrician. But I'm not going to come and tell you how to wire, do those wires over there, mate, because I haven't got a clue what I'm doing. Just like you can't run the, or I can't run the country. I haven't got a clue what I'm doing. <laughs> now, when, do you know what? And I love you've touched on that. I've honestly, I've seen all the conspiracy theorists and this, that, and the other. And as you said, I think it is true that we all need to respect each other's crafts. It's, it's very naive and, and very silly to think that we can, uh, people can jump on Twitter and say, Oh, Frank, come on. You don't know what you're doing. Make this fight happen or, tweeting Boris Johnson saying, oh, the prime minister doesn't know what he's doing. Because in the, the day, as you said, we have no idea, A, what it takes to even make it to government and B, the pressures they have to to try and run a country and, and keep 60 million people happy. I mean, as you know, as you know, in your own team and looking after, it's hard enough to get two fighters to agree to the size of the changing room, the color of the shorts and who does this and who does that. It's, that's hard work for you, right? That takes weeks and weeks and weeks. So you can only imagine the pressure of trying to get 60 million people to do exactly, to agree to exactly the same thing. It's just, it's not realistic. Oh, but people aren't going to be happy until he goes, right, Susan in, in Walsall, you're allowed to see your mum on Sunday. <laughs> Amy, you're allowed to see your boyfriend on Tuesday. Like, that's what people want. They want, they, <laughs> they can't just go, all right, fair enough. I know it's, you know, you've got a lot, you've got a lot on your plate, but, uh, <laughs> you know, everyone's, everyone's thoughts are important. But that's, that's like I say, it's the joys of social media. Yeah, no, for sure. And how do you, um, how would you say you handle, um, uh, social media. I mean, it's been obviously it's good exposure, and as you said, it's important. But how would you say you handle the the challenges of social media, especially trolls, people commenting, people always going to say, "Oh, Frank, this wasn't right. This show wasn't good. You're charging too much. This happened." How do you how have you personally navigated all the I call it noise, really, all the keyboard warriors out there? Uh, look, I think if you got a genuine comment and and you have reason to back it up then, yeah, fair play. Let's have a chat about it. There's a lot of people who just talk shit on there. And, you know, like I, I find it when I do interviews and stuff like YouTube interviews, it'll be like, oh, look at this fat fuck. He hasn't got a clue what he's doing. 27 years old. He hasn't got a clue. What, he doesn't know anything about boxing. Doesn't know this. Doesn't know that. And that sort of early on, it used to be like, oh, God, that, that affects, me, affects me. But over time, you just go, why do I care? You know, why do you care? <laughs> Like, so I think, but it affects everyone differently. I'm quite like a mentally strong character where I just, things go over my head, but I can see. And also it's such an irrelevant small scale to me, but like in terms of if I get 10 comments from someone, you know, I can see how people with, you know, mentally can be affected by it because if you're just surrounded by it and you spend your time on social media and all you're getting is abuse, like these celebrities and these influencers or whatever you call them i can understand it but i think you just have to pull yourself away from it 
No, 100%. I think I do agree with you that if you feed into it, it's just a recipe for disaster. It's actually just taking it for what it is. And, and as you said, just keep it moving, really, because if once you entertain one, it's two, three, it's 10, it's 20, then before you know it, it gets out of hand. But um, what would you say is your career highlight, Frank, so far from from where you started? You know, the boy from Romford makes it, you know, as matchroom CEO traveling the world. I mean, you did 276 nights last year, which again, like makes my head hurt. But that's a conversation for another day. What would you say is your career highlight? What's the one thing you look back on right now and say, you know what, that was a moment that I would cherish for ever. I'm sure there's uh, plenty, but give me one that really sticks out. The Saudi trip and what we did there has got to be one of the ones that sticks out in my mind because what was created there and and everything we went through to get to that point and all the work that was put in, that made it very special. And especially because of the end result as well. You know, we did all the work, we created it, and then AJ goes in there and gets the win. So that that really stands out for me as one of the as one of the moments of, of you know achievements in my life, um, but look, there's been tons and tons, and that's again where I say I should write things down because it all merges into one. Like we've we've probably done twenty shows at the O2, sold out twenty thousand people a time, and they are all great. You know, Wembley, we've done three or four times. They're amazing, Cardiff. So you know, it's so many nights that you, that I could point out, but it does just blur into one, and we just. We're just running with it and we got, and this is just the start and we want to get even bigger and bigger and keep growing and building in this sport. Yeah, no, for sure. And I think you're, you're definitely on, uh, on the way to, you know, to only getting bigger with the offices. I know New York and I know you're doing stuff in Italy, Monaco here, you know, it just shows the growth that exponentially, I think Matchroom will only get bigger as a company, even the boxing division, you know, with all the talent you guys are constantly taking on. Um, so I can only wish you, you know, the best, and I'm sure you're going to continue to, to inspire us all in your approach and everything you do. And hopefully I'm going to have you back again for another interview, you know, maybe in a year or two's time, we can look back again to see how you come out the other side of Corona and the shows that you would have put on. Um, but before we end, Frank, I want to, number one, I want to ask you, um, when I'll be receiving my invite for your wedding with emily uh it depends if we make it out of covid alive together you know like she she's uh, it's been a few it's been a few times where she had a pot and pan over the back of my head so no it's uh i'm sure i'm sure it's coming in the next few years though and i'll keep you updated no please do and like i said as you said eddie eddie giving out the best man speech as you said that genuinely will be pay-per-view numbers will be through the roof <laughs> i think i'm gonna put i think i'm gonna put a wager on that one as well. <laughs> and um and frank you also mentioned about uh potentially matchroom moving into music how do you see that and like the future of matchroom because i know you said that music's an area that you're you're personally interested in and as a company you you guys have looked at and hopefully one day you'll explore so tell me a bit about that yeah, there's music. There's we're looking at football agency as well. Um, but yeah, mu- music's one where you know we've worked in events for years and years and years and created events you know across sports. And music's just something we want to we want to look at. We've you know, we've gone into basketball recently. We've gone into gymnastics recently, um, netball, etc. So we're always open to new ideas and and we know how to put an event on. Uh, be honest, we're not comp- we're not experts within the music industry, but we weren't experts in anything when things started. So, you know, these, uh, it's, it's a learning process and definitely something we're going to look at in probably 2021. Yeah. Well, since, since you've already got, you know, you, you and Jay-Z already on the mate level. So <laughs> that could be, you know, you could put that call into rock nation, you know, first act Jay-Z match your, match your music. I'll be there for sure. So I'll just drop him a WhatsApp when this is over. (laughs) I'll let you know. Yeah. And um, who would you say is the next big prospect to look out for in the matchroom stable? Oh, God, we got tons. But uh, to pick one, I would, I really like the look of Diego Pacheco, who's one of our American fighters. Since you've said that, I will definitely be doing my research after this. Um, And our final closing question, Frank, we have to ask all our guests. 
as you know, the, the title of the podcast is Can I Get a Picture? So our final question is, who is one person that inspires you that you would love to have your picture taken with and why? Oh, that's a tough question. You should, you should have teed me up before with this. Uh, in, <laughs> inspires me. Now, I wanted, to, I wanted to do it on the spot. It makes it a bit harder. Inspires me that I'd like to get a picture with... I would say Muhammad Ali, because I know that's probably a bit, you know, but I just think what he did in a time where without social media... You know, it's very easy to be famous nowadays. Anyone can be famous nowadays. Whereas he became a superstar all those years ago. And I just, I, I, I love like his lines, his quotes, you know, the, the things he comes out with. So I'd probably say him. Thanks again to Frank for taking the time to chat with me. And thank you all for listening. Be sure to follow us on Instagram at Can I Get a Picture Pod? And we'll be back again next week with another episode.